There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Midpoint. My guest today is a man who spent a lifetime championing the consumer. As a financial journalist, he started a newsletter which grew and grew until he had a website that he was able to sell for a reported figure of £87 million. That makes Martin Lewis, moneysavingexpert.com, a very wealthy man. But his passion for taking on the underdog and fighting for consumer rights has not dimmed. I worked with Martin at Five Live in around 2010-11, and I found him to be a very joyful, positive man with a passion for his work and his family. And 10 years on from that, he remains exactly the same. But I wonder if his achievements have given him a different midlife perspective to say you or me who's not worth 87 million pounds. This is a slightly different episode because I was so excited to be able to get the no-nonsense fitness influencer James Smith onto the podcast that I've given him his own section. He's English, lives in Australia and if you don't follow him on Instagram or TikTok it may be worth taking a look before you listen to him. Maybe you want to read one of his books as well. He's got two out, a new one coming down the track. He's about as direct and demystifying of the fitness mumbo jumbo that sometimes sits on those kinds of platforms as it is is possible to be without being rude. Occasionally he does have the odd swear word pop out, but I just really like his style and the way he distills everything. So I hope you do too. Thank you to Solgar for sponsoring us today. And as always, they have something for you. If you're feeling you need a little pep up, a little boost, 300 vitamins and minerals sit in their gold top range. And remember, use the code the midpoint and you get 30% off which is quite considerable, as Martin Lewis, I'm sure, would agree 30% is um, 20% less than 50%. Right, here's the force of nature that is Martin Lewis, CBE. Martin Lewis, CBE, it's been a while. How are you? I'm all right. I've been very, very busy. As always. I used to love doing the programme with you every week and I miss you. So it's very nice to be on here with you. Oh, it's so lovely to hear your voice kind of in a more intimate way. I hear you all the time on radio, of course, and you're on Nihal's show. And I get a little bit jealous about that sometimes. That used to be my slot. You used to tell me those amazing things and uh, and inform and educate people, as you've been doing for such a, such a long time now. Um, you were a financial journalist at the very beginning. That's kind of what you started out. You went to the LSE. I still am. Yeah, yeah. That's still how I define myself. I'm a campaigning consumer journalist. I did my postgrad in broadcast journalism at Cardiff University. And I went to the BBC as a producer reporter, which in classic BBC way meant do no reporting and do all producing. There you go. And spent years there going, when are you going to let me on air? Because that's what I wanted to get into the profession for. And then I only started writing later, actually. My grammar and spelling is still appalling, which is one of the reasons I chose to be a broadcaster. But these days I have wonderful, clever people who proof and sub the work I do. So my grammar and spelling looks as if it's divine. I suppose then you had a job as opposed to stardom. Now... You have a very important job, but you also have that public face in what you do. Very public face, because not only do you do what you do brilliantly in an entertaining manner, but also with such commitment to people, you know, to to really change and help people's lives. Was it ever thus? Were you a campaigning child? Did you hate seeing kind of wrongs and mistreatment of people? I'm not sure I was campaigning when I was a child. 
I think probably since university is when this started, I've always had a responsibility chip. You know, when we went to university, I don't drink very much. So not that we were drivers at the time, but I was always the one who made sure everybody was safe. And because I grew up in a special education school. So my father was headmaster of a residential special education school for children with special needs. And so I grew up knowing the innate privilege that you have from having decent mental capacity that could get me through things and being able to understand things quickly. And I was a bright boy as well. So things like that worked for me. So I always knew that there was a privilege involved in that, which is a privilege I don't think many people see when they're young. You know, you go to school or your classmates, you know, that there's differing abilities, but not of the type of range of differing abilities that I saw. Mm. I mean, there were some people at my dad's school who just had extreme dyslexia or dyscalculia. And then there were some people for whom, and I have said this before publicly, I remember one boy at the age of 15, after three years of learning, he finally managed to tie his shoelaces. And I have never seen anybody still who has climbed a bigger mountain than that child learning to tie shoelaces. And even, I think I was a year or two older than him, maybe 17. And even at the age of 17, I cried because I understood what that was. So I think that is a slightly different upbringing because mm. we lived right next door to the school and there was nothing else out there. So I was at that school a lot. So I was involved in that from a very young age. And from the age of 12, after my mum passed away, I would have school dinners at my dad's school. So I'd have school dinners at my own school and then I'd come home and because my, it was a residential school and he had to be there, that was his job, I would then go and have my dinner, my evening meal at his school with all the children there. So that school was a very big part of my growing up and I think that gave me a very different attitude to fortune. And it's an incredible thing to know that, to recognise that, to take it with you through life, but also to never lose that because... Life has a way, doesn't it, of throwing things at us, whether that is material wealth or trappings, and to never lose the essence of that person is remarkable. Yes, and wouldn't that be wonderful if it were true? (laughs) But it clearly is, because you're still as passionate about campaigning as you ever were. You're looking at the beginning of the line and the end of the line and assuming that it was always joined in the middle. Right, so tell me when it went awry then. I'm not sure it went awry to that extent, but certainly it's far from linear and far from consistent. You know, I went to university. I was very pushy and really overly out there when I was at uni. Do you look at that person now and find him a little bit extra? A bit, as the kids say. I find him a lot extra. (laughs) (laughs) People who are there with me will understand. But I try not to, and it's so dangerous talking to you because you're a friend and therefore I talk about the things that I would normally restrain myself from. But again, After I lost my mum, because it was very sudden, I didn't leave the house until I was 18, effectively. I mean, I went and stayed at my grandma and did that type of stuff. Mm. Didn't have a social life. I was in quite a state. And so then I took a year out. When I got to university, I'd done this pancake flip. And I was just like, there's life out there. Woo! And I was just riding this high of actually being able to talk to people and not crying my eyes out every day, which is what I'd done for many years. So that was where the extra came from. It was this relief. But how did you get to university? Because to have that experience for your teenage years after your mum died and then to make the step to go to university, a lot of people would think, I'm not even going to go to university. I just can't. Well, university was a natural path for me. I'd been very bright in junior school, very, very bright, years ahead at certain subjects. And then academically, I was then bottom of the class in senior school for a number of the years in everything after because I couldn't focus on study after what had happened. 
And then I start to recover and things started to get a little bit better. I'm just smiling because I'm thinking about a story of my dad. <laughs> uh, shall I tell it? You'll like it. Yes, yes. Go You'll on. do him such a bad life. My dad's a wonderful man and he's a good father, but he's very demanding. So when you have a child who was bright, and I understand it now because I've got one too, you want them to live out their potential. And obviously after what happened to me and everything went, I'd lost all the academia, I'd been out of it. I missed lots of years and it stuck the progress. When I was about 17, I was just about coming back in and focusing and working again and doing better. And there was a thing called the Young Enterprise Scheme, which I now actually, Young Money is part of it. And it's one of the charities I work with a lot. And the Young Enterprise Scheme, um, you set up businesses and we did two businesses in one school. One was incredibly successful. They made boomerangs and one was an absolute flop, which was the one I was involved in. And we made T-shirts and we just went kaput. And then at the end of this scheme, you had to do an exam. And it was an exam at 17 that you couldn't do any prep for. You didn't know what the questions were. There was no revision. So I didn't have legacy problems of having three years of not doing any work, which is what I struggled from in all the other things academically. Mm. And so I did this exam and I'd learned a lot from the business failing. And then I may have got these results. Some of this might have been telling the stories over the years when I was 17 or 18. But from what I remember, uh, there was something like 20,000 A-level students who took this exam and I came top in the country. Wow. Right. I was number one in the exam, and then there was a final in London, which was a discussion thing, and I think I came seventh. But there was number one in the exam, and I think I got 87%, and the next highest in the country was something like 81 or 82%. Wow. And this is the first time that I'd got something, because I'd never had anything. It was the first time in my school, you know, something I'd done was read out, and everybody else had it. I wasn't sporty. I wasn't, there was nothing else for me, and I'd, I was at home most of the time. I never went out anywhere. And I remember telling my dad... <laughs> This will give you a clue to the drive. I remember telling my dad that I did this and I got 87%. And his response after all this was, well done, but remember there's another 13%. (laughs) So I love you, Dad. (laughs) There there was a lot of expectation at the time. So going to university for me was a natural path. You know, I was relatively academic. I wanted to go to university. And I had to take a year out through circumstance, actually to do with the back operation, nothing else. But I took a year out and that year out was the best thing I'd ever done. If I hadn't taken the year out, I would not be where I am today because I would have gone to university a painfully shy 18 year old and would have struggled socially, would have struggled to make my mark and would have taken the path of least resistance. I would have been quiet. I would have probably had done a straighter course than I chose. I would have probably done something more like accounting and finance or maths, rather than doing something that interested me more, where I did government and law in the end. And the year out was where I grew. The year out was where I had lots of different, relatively naff, nothing to talk about experiences. Mm. But by the time the year later, and I was 19, and I'd actually been and done some things and started to kindle a life for the first time, then I was on fire when I arrived at university. I was way too loud, way too confident, probably obnoxiously confident, as some will remember, and very pushy. And it worked, you know, I was rag chair in my second week at university, you know, and lots of other positions. In the yeah, I was absolutely on fire and flying, but probably a complete pain in the arse. <laughs> so that showman that we see naturally communicating on television, whether it's your own shows or contributing to other people's shows. He came out of university. That's where he was born, was he? No, he started in the year out. Oh, right, OK. And that was the key. So what were you doing then in the year out? I went to summer camp in the States. And the first time I ever did anything on stage was when they cast a pantomime. 
right? So there was a pantomime with the English councillors at this summer camp. And there were, you know, quite a few drama students and they all got the parts. And, you know, I, I love to play it out and camp it up or whatever. But of course, back at the time, I wasn't the me I am now who would have done that. So the part I got was I was running the sound desk. So I wasn't, I wasn't in the pantomime. But the person who's playing the fairy godmother, who was an American psychologist on the camp, she couldn't do the dress rehearsal. So they asked if I would read. And I went out there to straight read it, you know, and read the lines like this. And something just clicked once I got out on that stage, which I'd never done before. And I delivered it and I went the whole hog. And they all sat around laughing their heads off. And they asked if I'd be the fairy godmother in the actual pantomime, which I did. And it was very funny and it gave me a bit more confidence. And then I remember, I mean, these are stupid stories, but I remember a friend's engagement who I worked with and the band didn't turn up and they were half hour late and she was upset. And I was cracking jokes with some friends there. And someone said, who didn't like the joke, if you think it's so funny, you go up on... And I did. And I went up and I got the microphone and I spoke to everybody there for half an hour and started talking to them and got to everyone to do a sing song and having never done anything before. And so that was the point when I realised this is maybe the person I might have been. Yeah. And I should have been at school. It makes me laugh. I never did a school play. I never stood on stage in school. I never spoke aloud. I never did any of those things. But the first time I did it, I found it a very natural thing. And even now, at this age, while I do telly, the thing I think I'm strongest at is give me a crowd of 500, 600 people. I mean, I'll talk about money, but it works. That's the thing where I find myself most engaged. Mm. I spent time doing stand-up for a while later on and understanding how to work with an audience and engage and have fun with an audience. And that was something that I think was within me, but didn't come out until the year out and then came out far more at university. But you could have done that and used that in, in lots of different ways. So why... Was money saving so important? Happenstance and fortune. I always say I wish I had been clever enough to have my career be designed rather than the truth of it, which was it's purely organic. It's just things that happened. You know, I got my first job after university. Like everybody else, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do, but I'd been uh, general secretary of the LSE Student Union, which was the president of the Student Union. And I won a couple of big things there that the students have been trying to get since the late 1960s. And so I was in 1994, which was representation on the academic board and the standing committee of the governors. And I changed the tactics rather than protesting. I tried a subtle way of doing it and made a speech. And I won quite, turned over on the governors, this debate of the great and the good. And they all opposed. And I managed to get a huge vote with me. That's a good story, but we won't bother telling it now. And at the end of that, I got about eight job offers. Wow. I hadn't applied for any and they all came. And one of them was the chair of the governors, a man called Sir Peter Parker. And Sir Peter Parker used to be head of British Rail, and he said, you need to go and work for my son. And his son was a man called Alan Parker, who's a very influential man, who's the head of Brunswick Financial PR and Financial and Corporate PR, which is a firm who anyone in the city would know are behind many of the big deals and, and corporate advice worldwide. Right. So I went, and I was the youngest person who had worked there because I didn't know what I wanted to do, so it seemed a good way to start. I spent a couple of years working there. And it's a great place to have worked. But when I was there, I knew I was on the wrong side. Right. You know, advising companies how to manage their message just did not feel right to me. And uh, I was doing well there, but it was time to go. And having had that experience in PR, as you'll know, the other side of the page to PR is journalism. So I'd enjoyed the mechanism, the communication element of the job, but I thought I was on the wrong side. So I then went and did a postgrad in broadcast journalism. You were listening to your gut. Yeah. Which a lot of people don't seem to be able to do until they get to a certain stage. They ignore their gut or something gets in the way. But you were very in tune with yourself because it'd be so easy just to 
keep taking the money, keep taking the paychecks, working for companies, doing what was obviously actually quite easy for you? I actually went and I remember saying at the time, I'm going before they pay me too much that I can't leave. And I said that and my grandmother said, what are you doing? You're on a good job. So this is what we're going back to the beginning. Sorry to interrupt you, but we're going back to the, the person who had those incredible connection with those kids and realised how lucky he was. Was this the moment when he could have got a little bit perhaps off message, maybe? Yes. To- could you have gone another way, do you think? Yeah, I mean, we could have all gone other ways. Oh, I could yeah. have ended up doing many other things. I mean, it was accidental that I was in finance, to be honest. It was only because I did that and had some experience. And please, it's very important. And I do worry about this. So I'll say it to you honestly. I read about myself on Twitter and online and all these people, you know, here you'd be a great chancellor, you should be prime minister, and you'll have read it in your research, all this is the most trusted man in Britain stuff, which is all very nice, but I'm no saint. I'm a real human being. I've done lots of crappy things in my life. I've been mean to people at times. I've got skeletons in the closet. I don't know what they are. I can't think of them right now, but I'm sure there are some there, right? All of those things, you know, I am not an infallible, and it's lovely of you to make me out that way. And it's very nice of people to think that, but I'm just a human being with my own strengths and weaknesses and all of those. So I could have gone the other way. And I'm still, even now in what I do now, yes, this is why I said at the end of the line, I am in a position right now. I don't have to work for money, Mm. which puts me in a very difficult position to 99.9999% of everybody in the country. It's not a driving factor for me. I have more influence than most people should have. And I have an expertise in my subject. So it's very easy for me to be that honourable, trusted person in a vocational life, because I don't have to do what Many journalists in my sector do and have to take the odd corporate gig because corporate gigs pay a lot more than the journalism gig or have to sacrifice myself or go and do a speech for charity but want them to pay me because it's a bit expensive. I can have the rule that says I will never, ever be paid to go and do anything for charity. And I can have all these wonderful ethical ways of behaving because I'm in an incredibly fortunate position to allow myself to do so. And that's almost my slight concern with the narrative. There's a difficulty that the narrative paints me as what an amazing human being. That sounds, I don't mean it in a self-aggrandizing. Well, I'm not. I'm a fortunate human being. I'm a lucky person to be in the position to make choices that are easy for me and would be difficult to others and therefore look good in a reflection on it. How long has this almost dichotomy or or feeling of slightly uncomfortable about being deified, how long has this been going on? Because maybe since you publicly earned a lot of money selling your company... Well, I was petrified when that came out. And I tried to manage that for a long time and tried to subtly hint that I'd I'd been earning a lot of money. (laughs) The the truth is, this is before I sold, because people always say, what was it like to suddenly have all that money? I didn't suddenly have all that money. I was earning a large amount of money. The website was amazingly successful. All I did was crystallize it, Mm. you know, de-risk it. And I'm still there now, and it's still my passion, and I still do it. I just had an incredibly valuable asset beforehand. It just suddenly turned into numbers, but it was making very large amounts of money beforehand. Mm. Was that because you were worried that the kind of people you were trying to communicate with, say on Five Live, that they might not be quite as trusting of you? Well, I I was worried of that. I was worried it would be a shock to people. I also felt I'd known it for years. And I remember having discussions, how do I say it? How do you subtly tell people that I'm actually rich? How do you do that without sounding like an (laughs) arsehole? Right. And I don't want to show off about it because it's not what drives me. But equally, I didn't want people to felt misled Mm. that I'd moved away from being within my own target market effectively. 
But you'd been all right 30 years ago, Martin. The climate has changed so much on stuff like that in the Western world or in, in this country, certainly, hasn't it? You know, there was a time when there was a lot more of a kind of, well done, mate, that's great. And there's so much suspicion around wealth now. It's interesting because, yeah, I think tabloid newspapers, when they want to go, always like to write the multimillionaire money saving expert. They always put multimillionaire in when they're trying to have a go, which is their way of, I don't know, demeaning me. Mm. Sometimes, sometimes maybe not. Maybe I just read it as they're attempting to do so. But the rest of the copy, usually when they put that, is pretty indicative. And I was nervous about that because I genuinely can go to bed at night and sleep very, very well about how I made my money. You know, I think I did it in as ethical way as as you possibly could. I'm still absolutely committed and captured by the work that I see as my passion. But ultimately, you put those numbers out there. You see people message me and they say, Rishi Sunak, how could he possibly understand what life's like when he's worth that much money? Martin, you should be chancellor. And I go, well, you know, having a lot of money doesn't mean you can't understand. Mm. Maybe it's background. Maybe it's because I haven't had a lot of money all my life. I'm self-made. I don't know about Rishi Sunak's background, so I can't discuss it. But I say I was worried. I just thought, how do I handle it? I just want people to know that this isn't the driver. Mm. I mean, people don't believe me now when I say the website was never about making money. That was a, a wonderful happenstance. When I first set it up, it had no way of making any money. I only started to put ways of making money on it once my server bills were getting to 10 grand a month and I was a freelance journalist and I couldn't afford it. I remember you telling me that before. So it was almost like a blog at first, wasn't it? You were kind of talking about various products. It was very, very early on in the days of the internet, wasn't it, that you started doing it? It was very rudimentary. Yeah, I went viral before the term viral went viral. (laughs) And it grew and it exploded. I was able to capture it and make sure it worked and do all of those things. But the thing that used to excite me most was never looking at my bank balance. I had this, and I've still got the spreadsheet and I don't update it as much anymore. But I used to update every day on how many people had joined the weekly email list. And that was the thing. And I remember when it got to 10,000 and I remember when it got to 100,000 and I remember when it got to a million and I remember when it got to 10 million, right? And that spreadsheet every day and with a whole load of different mechanisms of rolling averages and all this type of stuff, that was the thing that turned me on most. And just the excitement of being able to reach people and knowing how much money people were saving. And that's still the driver now. And so the concern for me was, I'm not sure people would believe that that was the driver, but it was. Interestingly, I'm here 10 years later, and I'm still doing it, and everybody knows now. Mm. And actually, that worry's gone away, because I I sort of feel you can't really throw that at me. No. So was there ever a point where you thought, actually, it would be easier if I just walked away, took my money, and went and did something completely different? Campaigning, but maybe in a different way, a different area. (sighs) No. No, there have been times when I found it very difficult to cope with, but not not walk away for those reasons. Cope with what? The workload? I suffer from anxiety a lot. Mm. You know, it's very, very stressful. I mean, I remember back in 2005, three people saying in a week who'd got money back on bank charges, you're a god to me, and they thought it was fun, and I found that very, very hard to deal with. I'm not going to go into it, but very hard to deal with. Very hard to deal with. And I still find it hard now. And when people say, I don't understand what you've said, but I've done it because you said so. Mm. You know, and that's why the scam advert thing gets to me when someone messaged me yesterday saying, I know someone who's going to take their own lives because they've lost £200,000 because they put money in an investment that had your name on it. Well, it wasn't me. Mm. It was a scam. And that's why that's so painful. So, no, it's difficult. I'm very fortunate. 
and lots of people have much harder lives than I do, but I find the pressure of the responsibility very difficult. It's one of the reasons people say go into never going into politics. I could not cope with that adversarial system. I find it difficult enough to cope with just being well-known and, and being relatively liked. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be hated. I have a very, very thin skin. People think it's the opposite. I'm brittle. I find social media very difficult to deal with. I think many of us in the public I do. Mm-hmm. So the times I've wanted to move away, and not because of a lack of commitment to what I do, but just because there's been times I've found it difficult to deal with. OK, time to hear Sunday Times number one bestselling author now, James Smith. He started out actually working in the corporate world and then became a PT, a personal trainer and Instagrammer. And as I said before, he kind of calls out some of the more spurious and downright lying fitness influencers who are out there. He's very bold. His books include Not a Life Coach, Not a Diet Book, and his new book is How to Be Confident. And as you'll find out, He's a fantastic talker, slightly different to the persona you see on social media, but he explains to us exactly why. Enjoy. So, James, tell me how you ended up being somebody who I saw a delightful picture of you in a suit with quite a slightly square haircut. And you looked quite conforming to what society perhaps expected you to do at that time. How did you go from that to being somebody with a very loyal, enormous following on social media who has very positive influence in the fitness space? How did that journey happen? Thank you very much. That's very kind. Uh, I've always been pretty good with my mouth and chatting. So I end up in a sales department. I think that was always going to be the route I was going to go from being a gobby teenager. So I was kind of forced down the avenue of working in IT sales and doing a stint in recruitment. So I ended up in that, but it quite frankly felt like I was being suffocated the whole time. I mean, I'm not that type of person to conform to the corporate world. So honestly, I just gave up after a while trying to become successful in that field. And I was like, I'm just going to do something I enjoy. And with personal training, I was always envious of them. When I wore the suit and the tie, I'd see them on Twitter and I'd go, oh, what lucky people. They get to train people, research about nutrition and training and get to go to work in short. So rather than having the goals that many of my friends around me had, I was like, I'm just going to do something I enjoy. And if I can wear shorts to work every day, then I'll be fine. And then since that, you know, I've often said to people that you don't find passion before you do a job you love. You almost find it after doing it for a few years. So I just did something I knew would make me happy and passion came as a byproduct and now I'm here. That points to a security in yourself, I guess, or youth, one or the other. You know, people don't take big leaps into the unknown unless they're young. Your persona on social media is incredibly confident. Are you generally a confident person? Yes and no. I think that you have to be a certain version of yourself on social media, especially with the mediums that I use. I'm a very different person on my podcast than I am on TikTok or Twitter or even on Instagram. But for me, it was always just the deep understanding of what's the worst that could happen. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to become a PT. If in six months it doesn't work out, I'm back where I started. I can always go back to the job I didn't enjoy that paid well. And I don't think people give that enough thought. Six months, go after your ambitions, your goals, whatever it is. If it doesn't work out, you're back to square one. And for me, I have a great relationship with my parents. So the idea of becoming so skinned, I had to move back in my mum and dad wasn't actually that bad after all. Your mum and dad are in England and you're in Australia. Yeah, so... How did that happen? How did you end up in Australia? I was having a barbecue with my dad one day when I was about 27. It's about four or five years ago. And I kind of wanted him to tell me not to go to Australia. I said, oh, dad, I'm thinking of going to Australia for a bit. And he goes, yeah, I've always imagined you living somewhere like that. So I was like, I can go. He was like, yeah, but be careful with how you tell your mum. So I go in and I say to my mum in the kitchen, I'm going to go try out Australia for a bit. She goes, as long as you don't move there, that's fine. (laughs) 
I came here for three months and that was it. I knew that this was a place that was just suited for what I value in life. And every time I leave, there's a lot of tears. Even recently in January, when my visa came through, I go into my mom and dad's bedroom. My visa's come and my mom starts crying. She goes, you're not leaving yet. But my dad's there like, which airport are you going from? <laughs> it's kind of my worst nightmare, James. I've got 16-year-old twins. But you are obviously a very good son and uh, they see you on social media, I'm sure, all the time. As do I. And that's why I was so thrilled that you'd come on, because in a very crowded space with lots of noise, you cut through and disseminate information. And not even sometimes that, just say that this is not true and this is true. There are so many areas, whether it's politics, food, nutrition, that people aren't getting the truth. You could have gone a lot of different ways, right? What was it that incensed you so much at the start that you thought, I've got to start calling out this nonsense? I was misled for a very long time. The things that I call out with certainty now, I'm talking to a version of myself that's existed before. Right. And I feel that at 21, 19, even when I was 16, I would have loved an authoritative figure to just stand in and be like, no, stop doing that. You know, when I was doing things when I was younger... I wish someone had just slapped me in the face metaphorically and said, stop being an idiot, get back to the fundamentals. So I think it definitely comes from, I've developed a chip on my shoulder over the years of being the person that was misled. But again, I suppose it was how my content was resonating with people. I did sensible content and it would do quite well. But then if I was annoyed and I walked into the PT room and I just blasted out a video, that got the most traction. People actually kind of want to see this. But I suppose as well, I'm not the person that's the smartest in the room. I've got these mentors above me in the space. They're incredibly smart, much more deeply educated than I am. But I saw a big gap between the knowledge people need and the people. You know, in the moment, there's even this big rift between up and coming generations and politics. Mm -hmm. There's a massive gap between them. And no one's really bridging that gap. And I'm not an expert in politics, but in fitness, I was like, wow, there's 20 influential geniuses up here, but they're not very relatable. And they're not very succinct with their points either. So when they do talk about salient topics, they lose the average person. And not saying average in a bad way. I mean, mm -hmm. general populations. Myself, I'm not an athlete. I never played premiership rugby or any of that. So I can resonate to the everyday normal person. The mum who's struggling to have time for a workout or the employee in a sales role that doesn't have the luxury of doing personal training every day. I can communicate with these people. And really all I've done is bridge the communication gap between everyday people and the geniuses that aren't very good at communicating their point. And in terms of what you say and how you say it, you know, this audience that you're talking to now is largely midlife, which is anything over the age of 38, hungry for information about fitness because our bodies are changing, hormone levels are changing. And there's quite a lot of science that is going on in our bodies now. Let's talk specifically to those people. What kinds of advice would you give people in terms of their exercise lifestyle program? Does it change with age for you or is it always quite simple? I think there are always going to have to be considerations. I say to people, most things get harder as you get older. Hangovers are much worse. Getting out of bed's much worse. You end up having a lot more responsibilities. But it doesn't mean that you should give up with where you're at. There are two types of motivation that exist for people. We've got extrinsic, where people are doing things to avoid something bad happening. Now, that's not a great way to motivate someone. By saying to someone, hey, go on a treadmill or you have a heart attack, that doesn't make someone wake up wanting to exercise. Intrinsic motivations where people find things personally rewarding and if you look at anyone or any friend or person that you know who's done something religiously for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, it's because they find it personally rewarding. I'm sure we've all got friends that get a boat out on a Saturday morning and go rowing. They don't do it to avoid themselves having a heart attack. They do it because they enjoy it. So 
when looking at older generations, rather than saying, hey, exercise so you can exercise for longer, we say to them, look, how about we try and get stronger? We try and become more flexible. We try and do something they can find personally rewarding and then get them to work on a progression from that. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people are kind of overlooking when, you know, saying to older populations, we can go in with the argument saying, hey, osteoporosis, you know, bone density issues, sarcopenia, muscle wastage. But we need to be very careful with that. We should say to people, wouldn't it be great to be hitting personal bests and achieving goals throughout your 30s, 40s and 50s, which people 100% certainly can. It's possible, you think, to be increasing strength into your 50s? I think so. And I think that we need to look at the resources that are available to people. So you do have kids, you do probably get a worse night's sleep for a good 20 years. But at the same time, you're going to progress in your job and your work life, or even people have to give up work, which is an incredibly noble thing altogether. You're then in a position where you could potentially be smarter with your food shop. People always think their golden years are between 18 and 25, but I was getting pissed three times a week. (laughs) So I think that there's definitely pros and cons to both sides of it. Then I think that we should be striving to do as well as we can performance-wise. And you learn yourself. I've been lifting weights now for about 15 years. I'm still learning things. It's still fun. I'm probably not able to recover from quite what I could when I was younger. But I don't think that people should bite themselves off. And I'm doing a bit of research at the moment into something called the expectation effect, where if people think something's going to happen, it's more likely to feel that way. We saw this with the vaccine trials where 30% of people that were given the placebo said they felt ill and they were like, you know, I feel like I'm going to be sick. And when people think that age is going to get in the way, it allows it to get in the way. Mm -hmm. You know, when you lie to your kids and say, have that, you'll feel better. Or you put a plaster on when they fall over, whatever it is, even at younger ages, you can kiss their elbow and suddenly it's all fine. (laughs) So I think there is a lot of it that people manifest things with age. And I've been guilty of this where Everyone said, once you hit 30, hangovers are worse. It was overnight. It was as soon as there was a three in my age that I struggled with hangovers more. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important that people start looking at their older years, their 40s and their 50s and think there is an element of being in your prime still through these ages. And uh, you can be a lot more focused and have a better understanding of who you are. Yeah, well said. You've mentioned hangovers a few times now, and that's the one thing as well I kind of like from what you say, that there's a balance to things. So many influencers, it's very extreme. You know, if you don't follow this all the time, you are going to end up collapsing and your body's going to disintegrate. You talk about having a balance with your diet, not eating, obviously, junk food all the time, but occasionally you'll fall off a healthy diet. Occasionally you will have a drink. It's about enjoying life is what I get from you. But the message underneath is just stop eating too much as well. You talk about calories a lot, which is, I think, really interesting because I'm 49. When I was growing up, calories were it. You know what I mean? It was like kind of you counted calories, but nobody counted nutrition. What I'm trying to always impress upon, especially my son, that 3000 calories of sugar is different to 3000 really good balanced calories. Do you think that it's dangerous, clearly, when people are promoting certain kind of messages on social media about certain foods. Do you think perhaps it's all just got too confusing for people? Because I can't believe people don't know that. Do you know what I mean? You kind of think, why has this not got through yet? It's interesting you say that. And I think the best way to describe balance would be, you know, when people give financial advice, everyone's got that one mate who's like, oh, you need to put everything into this S&P. You need to be financially smarter. You need to use Groupon and save 4% on this. You could save yourself 72 pounds a year. And you're like, relax, mate, right? I appreciate there are smarter things to do with my money, but at the same time, I'm not going to be an idiot with it, but I'm not going to save every penny. And if I want something from Gucci that's ridiculous, I'm going to go get it. And it's that balance we need to have with our diet. You know, having a perfect diet is not a good life. 
because it's boring. It doesn't give enough pleasure. You know, it's not sociable enough. If you give up high calorie foods and alcohol, you're saying goodbye to 80% of things that make people happy in life. You know, even you go on holiday to enjoy those two things in a different setting. So that's why I think this is a pretty bold thing to say, but a lot of eating disorders exist within the fitness industry. If you're willing to lift your top up and take a picture, you can make a living out of having an eating disorder. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the fitness industry that do and they profit heavily from it. And then when they do eventually break that and end up getting to healthier body fat percentages, they end up in the body positivity movement. You know, guys, accept yourself, you know, accept your curves. I'm like, whoa, you just spent four years making money from being shredded. So you have definitely that side of things. (laughs) And this is men and women, isn't it? hundred percent. If we were to look at some of these people's behaviors around their eating habits, you're like, this is not healthy. But because they can make a living for it and they've developed a bit of muscle, you can kind of guise it up very well. Getting to your second point about calories. For me, there's a pyramid of things that need to be addressed. And the calories are the bottom part because you can give someone a high protein diet. If they haven't addressed their calories, it's not going to help. You can give them vegetables, you can give them extra sleep, sunlight, whatever. And I've always used this analogy. If you have a leak in your bathroom and you wake up and there's water everywhere, if you don't address calories, you're starting to clean up the mess before you've plugged the leak. The first thing we need to do is to go in and say, stop that water coming out. Then let's address what's in front of us. And the reason I drum this calorie message, even though there are so many nuances to it, is that I can say, look, now that we've controlled the amount of calories coming in, even if someone's eating a diet full of rubbish and they're overweight, my first priority is to keep their diet shit, but reduce the calories. Like I'm plugging the leak straight away. From then we can start implementing swaps with diet drinks and low calorie ice creams. And we do that over time. Unfortunately, the majority of people on socials don't see the later points in my message. They just hear the calories and they think that that's all I'm talking about. But that's just the first part of it. Similarly to the financial discussion, hey, mate, stop going to Gucci your skin. You know, so that would be the first thing. Then after that, we could look at sensible spending habits. So it's all about getting in the most important things first Mm -hmm. and not giving too much importance to other things. But like you say, because this message has been omnipresent for so long, it's becoming saturated and Other people need another way to come into that angle. So they need to create their own systems for it. People love a new thing that they think is going to be quick fix, don't they? Even I get caught up with this. I'm sat next to my business partner now. I said, you ever tried carnival? (laughs) They know the science, but so many people I respect are feeling good on it. And I'm like, whoa, maybe I should try this out. And then I'm like, snap out of it. I know about fiber, vegetables, fruits, and I know that my training would go down the pan. And you smell strange as well. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the breath thing is an interesting one as well, where people, when they go low carb, they often have smelly breath. And then I go, James, mate, if you want to lose a couple of kg, just reduce your calorie intake a bit. I'm like, oh yeah, now we're back to the beginning. And in midlife, people regularly say, oh, I can't eat as much. I've put on weight. Now, there's different reasons why women put on weight to do with menopause. But is the calorie thing in midlife purely to do with people slowing down, do you think? If I carry on, like today, I'm going to do a Pilates class. I've got to do a kayaking thing. And then I might go and see a PT later on. Just the way today's happened, right? So I'm going to be burning a lot of calories, doing a lot of exercise. I won't necessarily eat much more than I normally would. But that's a much more active day, say, than another day where I might be sat at a desk writing all day. Are midlifers, do you think, almost kidding themselves because their lives have slowed down a lot? They think they're not burning in the same way. I think there's going to be quite a few issues to this. You mentioned menopause. Now, menopause is something that I've learned a lot about in the last few years. I was one of the first PTs to get into the menstrual cycle and tell women how it affected their training. But with menopause and reproductive hormones essentially halting, these hormones play a big role in recovery and performance. 
in how we feel. Testosterone in males declines about 1% a year after 30. And I think in the next five years, we're going to see a lot more HRT and TRT discussions where if you're a male in your 40s or you're a woman in your 50s, hormonal intervention is going to allow you to perform better, be more inclined to train. You've also got to look at things like training morale. You know, even if there were acute health issues with HRT, which I still don't believe the data really points in that direction, even if there was the same in men, if you can keep someone with better training morale, higher training frequency, more lifting weights, better bone density, all of these things combined, we're actually going to counter any of the issues we have with that. So I think that it's not so much the age that's potentially the issue. You're not like, oh, you're 50 now, you're useless. But we are going to see a decline in certain hormones as we start to get older. Aging is going to take into effect even other things like sunlight, for instance. I think that a lot of people in the UK over the last few years, we didn't really get a summer. I was back for that. Then before that, you had a pandemic where you couldn't really go to Europe. I think such a big part of the British ecosystem is having Europe on your doorstep. And when Mm. that was denied for a year or whatever, all of these things can definitely have issues on people. And I don't think they're given the importance enough as we get older that maybe in your 20s, you could get away with not supplementing vitamin D. You could get away with so many other things. But now Mm -hmm. when you get older, you need to pay more attention to these things. Yeah. And in terms of what we eat in midlife, there's a certain newspaper and it's a broadsheet regarded as one of the better newspapers. It's obviously got a health editor who's obsessed with midlife because nearly every article is about the foods you should be eating in midlife, the exercises you should be doing in midlife. And they all seem to me to be things that you probably should do all the time. They're kind of weight bearing exercises or getting a lot of nuts and berries into your diet, all kinds of things that are just good practice. Is there anything specific that you have noticed or have come across that would help the midlifer in terms of feeling good about the strength training or in terms of diet that you think, I'm not asking for a quick fix, but just a takeaway for them that they would feel that they've got some James Smith golden nugget. Well, when you're younger, doing a hit workout or going for a run is all right. You're like, oh, I ate a lot of the weekend, I'm going for a run. Then as you start to get a bit older, you can't just go for a five mile run without any preconditioning. I always say this about Christmas. When I was 26, on Boxing Day, I could go for a 10k run and that was it. Christmas Day was gone. Now, if you have a big Christmas, it's still with you in February. (laughs) So when we're looking at programming, this is why I always love weight training, because this is something that if you're any age between 20 and 50, you should be able to say, I can do this for another 30 years. And with running and we're doing mountain climbers in your front room, that's just not going to be the answer. Yeah, maybe a few more years, but eventually you're going to get sick to death of it. And the relationship people have with weight training, I feel is far superior is people's time out the house if they're fortunate enough or time in the training room in their house if they are. They can listen to a podcast, listen to an audiobook, listen to their favorite playlist, put new songs on it, try new exercise variations, all of these things. It's like an hour that people have to themselves. So people with their training, if they're genuinely in love with weight training and doing those things, not only is there a plethora of benefits to bone health, muscle health or whatever, it's something that's got longevity to it. I mean, I've trained people that are as old as 70, 75. When they would come into the gym, quite simply, I'd be like, okay, we're going to sit down on this 12 inch box and stand back up because it would replicate getting on and off the sofa or whatever it was, every day to day things. And I'd say to them, let me know when you only feel like you've got two or three reps left and we're going to rest. And I'd be talking to them. How was your day? Then they go, oh, you know, that's it. And I cool. We're going to take a minute. We're going to go again. And it's not that I was putting them on leg presses or squat racks or anything like that. It was just being smart with that. What am I going to give someone who's 60 or 70 as far as an exercise that they could be paired with and happy with for a while, your options are very limited when you look outside of weight training. So weight training is what you take away. Or resistance training, which again, technically I wouldn't put weights on them, but yeah, that's going to be it. And I think that 
that's probably one of the ones where people don't feel too beaten up afterwards as well. When you start a program, you will. When you start a new regime, the first two weeks, you're like, well, my client's like, James, I think I pulled a quad. I'm like, no, no, it's your first set of squats, you'll be okay. <laughs> and then after a while, you're not too smashed by it. And again, we live in this world where everyone epitomizes not being able to walk the next day. I think that really people should be more concerned of undercooking their workout than overcooking it. And if you can just have this tiny little resonance of soreness for the rest of your life, not too much that cripples you, you know you're in a sweet spot with your training. And there's also a functionality, I think, needed in fitness in midlife because I love training. I'm very lucky. I've always loved training, right? So I'll do it anyway. But I also like being able to, on Saturday, for example, play tennis. I want to be functional in other areas and do things for a long time. And I think that message sometimes gets missed as well. You mentioned at the very beginning, you know, beating people with messages about not having osteoporosis or heart disease. Actually, why can we not just look forward and be excited about doing really great things with that extra time that we're going to have, which will come, as you mentioned, you know, you get a freedom once your children get older, time is a little bit more abundant. So I think that message needs to come through as well for people to enjoy life. 100%. You know, after you have a C-section, I think it's like six weeks, you're not allowed to drive. Something crazy like that. Who's picking up the baby out of the cart the next day? So hold on. <laughs> You're not allowed to get behind the wheel of a car, an automatic that you drive, an SUV. But suddenly you've got to pick up a five, six kilogram baby for the next six weeks or however much it is. People are, oh, don't deadlift. It's bad for your back. I'll tell you what else is bad for your back. Picking up a baby or kid, <laughs> toddler, child for the next few years. And like you say with the tennis, I've recently got addicted to tennis. We should be looking to weaponize ourselves, not in a dangerous way, but to see what we're capable of. And I'm a big advocate of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, something that's taken over my life in the last few years. And Women ask me if it's good for self-defense. And I'm like, screw self-defense. You know, what's important here? If you are becoming competent in martial arts to avoid something bad happening, that's extrinsic motivation. If you're doing something for self-defense, you're doing it because you think you're going to be attacked. Instead, I say to every female or woman that's ever asked me about jiu-jitsu, I go, there's a certain competence you have to fighting. Would you like to improve that? Mm. You know, so when you're boxing, you're hitting pads in a park or you're doing jiu-jitsu or karate or taekwondo you're weaponizing yourself to be a more competent human being hopefully you never need to use that but you know when you're looking at physical ability everyone should be striving to be the biggest weapon they can i always joke with my clients about a zombie apocalypse i'm like when they come you need a base level of cardio bit of strength <laughs> you're gonna need to be able to fight these off a few years ago james i think i would have thought zombie apocalypse nowadays that could happen next week i mean let's be honest the way the world is at the moment i need to be ready for the zombie apocalypse so <laughs> you remember when um during the pandemic everyone was clapping for the nhs I was like, hold on a minute. Three weeks ago, you were fighting them for toilet roll. Everyone's out on their doorstep clapping. I was like, where were you when everyone was fighting for bog roll? Bit of double standard. <laughs> so James, will we ever see you come back to the UK and share your wisdom with this audience? I know on social media, you must have an enormous following from the UK. Yeah, it's about 70, 75%. Right. So I do get mistaken for being Australian sometimes, which I'm still proudly British. Uh, I'm coming back next month to see my parents, actually. Mum's orders. So I'll be back for a bit and see my publishers because we've got a new book coming out. But then. I'll be back here again and then back in the UK in August. And I'm so glad that I'm in a position now where there's no quarantine because Australia was one of the last countries to drop their two-week quarantine. So yeah, I'll be back soon. Your books are not a life coach, not a diet book. And your new book is How to Be Confident. Yes. So can you distill that for those listening and give them a tease that they might want to go out and buy it? I wrote the first book called Not a Diet Book to debunk all of the misinformation in the fitness industry. Then as a precursor to that, I don't think people are gluttonous. I don't think people are obese by choice. I think that a lot of people aren't happy in their work life. And I don't think they're happy in their relationships. And 
I think that if you're going to come home from a job you hate to get in bed with the person you're not in love with, you're going to struggle to train hard and restrict your calories. So I wrote the second book to create action as a precursor for the first. Now, after writing the first two books, the last gaping hole in people's development is their levels of confidence to apply for jobs or pay rises or to leave partners or to do all of this. So it's about bringing strategies and tools together that I've known and that I've learned to give people the ability to be more confident in situations. So what have you noticed is a common trait for people who aren't confident? What is it that it goes back to? It could be how they deal with criticisms, how they talk to themselves. Taking other people's criticisms on board, for instance, if you are someone who's able to brush that off like water down a duck's back, you have a much clearer vision on what you're doing. But if you're someone that needs confirmation from other people, people around you never really want to see you in a position of discomfort. This is why people, especially in family and friends, are the first ones to put your ambitions down. They don't even know they're doing it. They just want to keep you safe. They don't want to see you upset. So certain things like that, people's internal monologues of how they talk to themselves. It's one of those things that's really individual to other people. What I found is I might be amazingly confident at speaking in front of big crowds, but the second I need to ask a girl for a number, I completely freeze on the spot. So then people have confidence in some areas of their life, but then it's massively lacking in others. So no two situations are really the same. James, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and I hope it just keeps on growing for you and you eventually, for your mum's sake, as a mother, I'd like you to come back and have your babies in the UK because I feel for her or she's going to have to bite the bullet and go live in Australia. But well done you for making it all work and well done for taking that leap. A lot of people listening to this will want to take a leap and do something a bit different and I know you did it at a young age, but I truly believe that it's never too late, is it, to make a big change? Never. And especially if you're not happy. Things don't get better over time. They often get worse. So that's one of the things that I put in the second book. James, have a great day. As I'm talking to you, the sun is dappling on the wall behind you and it's looking like a lovely Australian evening there. This is early in the UK for me. So go for a run on the beach or do whatever you're going to do. Go for a barbie. And um, I won't show you what the weather's like here this morning. I've got a Scottish husband. He would call it Dreek. And I'm not in Scotland. So there you go. You're winning. Take care. Cheers. Thank you very much. Do you stay because there is still so much more to campaign, still so much more to do? Or do you stay because you haven't found... You need something, I'm guessing. You're not going to lie on a beach, are you, Martin? You're not that kind of person. No. Well, I'd like to for a bit, but maybe, you know, a good one or two hours at most. <laughs> hours. I can't do it. Very bad. Very bad. Can't do beach holidays. I like a beach for an hour or two, but I get very bored very quickly. I stay for lots of reasons. I stay because I haven't got anything else that I feel would do as much good. And that's an easy driver for me again, not because of deification, because I'm not an entrepreneur. I don't want to go and make a billion quid. It's just not, not interesting for me. You know, I'm interested in impact and campaigning, and those are the things that I like. Mm. And doing what I do seems to be the right way to do it, especially after the coronavirus. But also because oh, it's, some things are really difficult to explain without sounding a bit prattish, but let me try. You wouldn't sound prattish. I think... I was the right person or a person, but definitely in the right place at the right time. There hasn't been anyone else who talks about money, who's broken out of the money ghetto, if you like, who's broken outside of standard money or personal finance journalism, the odd slot here and there. And I have. For one reason or other, I have. The website has and my TV work has, you know, 
my ITV show, which has great audience, I mean, really huge audience, biggest current affairs show on the telly. I mean, it's basically a man doing a PowerPoint in a Q&A. <laughs> right? And it's on half an hour live and it rates really well. I mean, it's ridiculous. And it took me a long time to morph the show into that, which is what I really wanted because I knew it works because people want the content. But a lot of my television slots are me slots, not money slots. Mm. Right? And when I'm not there, they don't do them. No. Other subjects, they do do them. When someone's off, they have a filler. They don't when I'm off. Right. Because... They tend not to engage. So I don't know what I did right, but I did it right. So there's no heir apparent, basically. And I don't think there will be. I mean, we talked about this on the website and it just doesn't work. So one might appear one day through a random series of patterns. It may happen. And let's hope so. At some point, maybe I'm not ready just yet, but it'd be nice at some point to pass the baton on. But I don't think we're there now. And certainly not in the political small p influencing sphere. I think that's the bit that's most difficult to replicate. And this is where I don't want to sell and sell for grandizing. I worry that if I'm not there, I have a very loud voice in a very specific area and I'm quite difficult to ignore when raising important issues. And I think if I don't do it, the combined voices that are left will be quieter without the position that I'm in right now. So it's a burden of responsibility as much as anything else, I feel. But maybe I'm just completely crackers and over-egging my own position, quite possibly. I don't think you are, because as you say, it's a very competitive industry and people always like breaking talent. So if there was anybody that was the heir apparent, I think we'd kind of know about them by now. But you're a very hard act to emulate because of the passion and the history and the commitment. It's the work. The secret is just lots of hard work. And it's hours and hours building the one hour on the radio or the half an hour on telly. That's not the work. It's the work that goes into it. And these days I have a great team feeding me. But just keeping on top of the subject is... Hard work. It's a binary job, this. You know, when I go on a holiday, it's like being a performance athlete. I try and take a few weeks off in the summer. And when I come back, it takes me three weeks to get back up to speed. I have to go back into training, if you like. To get the muscles back. Yeah, because of all the different subjects and things I need to remember, I get out of shape. I've noticed you saying quite a lot lately. I'm off Twitter now for the weekend or I'm shutting up shop on social media for a few days. And I get the impression that you really have to force yourself to do that because obviously people are coming in with questions. They're asking things of you. It's not just you promoting things. <laughs> You're not using social media to sell, you know, some lovely hotel. Absolutely not. Yeah. So you obviously feel real connection to the people that are coming in on social media, asking you questions. How hard is it for you to kind of withdraw like that then? Well, I try and withdraw. Sometimes I look at a weekend, which I get annoyed at myself with. I do try and sign off every weekend and work on half terms and things like that, because I think it's not good for your mental health not to, frankly. Mm. Uh, but also the reason I do it publicly and some people say, why, why do you have to tell us? Just go. I do it because I get a lot of desperate people contacting me and I want them to understand that they're not going to get a reply when I'm signed off. Mm. And that level of desperation is desperation for an answer right up to taking their lives desperation, which happens a lot in the financial sphere. So part of the reason I do it is a communication clarity, because on all my social media feeds, it's me. If anybody ever writes on my social media feed, one of my team does, they sign it off as them. It only happens during my live show. And there's one thing that's posted on my Facebook each week by my team, and they always sign it off that it's them. Everything else is me. And one of my rules is nobody else writes in my name. Now, if I'm doing an article, I might dictate something, someone tidies it up, and then I do the final edit. But there's nothing done in my name that isn't properly coming from me. And so I feel it's really important to say to people, I'm not here. I can't answer everything that comes to me on social media. I get way too many questions. But I try and answer when I'm on, easy things or important things is what I try and cover. That's sort of my two ways of breaking it down. 
But that's you having a bit of self-care, right? Looking after yourself, making sure you're present with your family. Absolutely. Making sure that you're looking after your own mental health. So what do you do when you've shut that down and you're then present? How are you turning off completely or turning on to something else? Well, I'll answer this in a relatively restrictive way and I'll be transparent with you and transparent with the people listening. I try not to give too much of the private me, not because there's anything to hide, but because I believe my family life is private. And my cousin is quite a well-known media lawyer and years ago we discussed it as the vampire rule. You know the vampire rule? A vampire can't come in your house until you invite them in, but once you've invited them in, you can't get them out. If you've ever watched Lost Boys, you'll understand that rule uh, until the end. And so the whole thing with the press is if you ever invite the press into your house, your house is then fair game. The more you open up, the more your privacy can be invaded. Now, here I am talking to a friend. Of course, I'd happily tell you, but I suspect most of the people listening would all find it warm and interesting and nice and relatively boring information. But if I tell you, then I'm inviting other people to make their own decisions of when they come in. And you can see we're doing this on a camera at the moment. You can see the background. Behind me is the back wall in my office. Now, when the pandemic started, for the first time in my life, I did stuff from home because it was lockdown. And I had somebody in the mail, I think it was Jan Muir, wrote, look at him trying to show off his awards in his MBA. Were you flaunting? Because that's the Daily Mail's favourite. I was fuming. Were you flaunting your books? Because I've never filmed or done anything in my house before. But because of the pandemic, I had to. And I deliberately didn't alter my desk. I put what was at my desk behind me. And all people ever see is this really limited shot. Because my house is my business. And my life is my business. And I think this limited pandemic opening up a bookshelf is fine but nothing else. So I'll answer the stuff that's on record to you, but you'll forgive me that I deliberately don't go further because it opens the door. No, it's okay. I really was meaning things like exercise, for example. Yeah. I know you're into athletics and you love running and you're big on steps. I'm into watching athletics and commentating or commentating a bit, as you probably know. Senior at work. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I enjoy myself. Nothing like you. But athletics was always my favourite sport as a kid. That was the first thing I was a stato on before financial products. You know, when I was that sad little boy of 14, that was the thing. I used to love my athletics. I could tell you every world European and British record off the top of my head without a problem when I was that age, because that was the thing I was into. So there's a legacy of that. And when I did the world championship, sitting with you and presenting that in the stadium, that was for that little boy, which was wonderful. So I do two things. I do fitness and I do health. So my walking is health. And it's been incredibly important for my back, properly obsessed by doing my steps. So I try and do a minimum 20,000 a day. I think 16 days last year, I missed 20,000. And I haven't missed 10,000 since, uh, when will it be? October 2017 was the last day. I didn't do 10,000 steps in a day. Wow. So is that two big walks a day? Oh, it's or, a... Um, do you wait till the end of the day? I either cross train or run every day. I've got plantar fasciitis at the moment, so I'm just cross training. I'm not running. So I will do that normally three runs a week, four cross trains a week, then three or four weight sessions a week. That's the fitness stuff. And you wanted to do this on camera, which always frustrates me because every phone or talking conversation I have is always done walking. Every meeting I have, where possible, is done walking. I have a PA. She schedules it. She's really good. She understands that is a very important part of my day. So I'll do two hours meeting and I will be out walking in all weathers, or walking around the room if it's too bad to go out and constantly moving. If I'm talking, I'm walking as much as I can. 
Does that mean that the midlife, middle-aged Martin Lewis can eat what he wants then because he's doing 20,000 steps a day? I can't eat quite what I want, but I can eat a lot. You know, I can easily do three and a half thousand, four thousand calories without worrying too much. And I can have my chocolate every day. Healthy lunch, less healthy dinner, quite a few snacks. And I'm in better shape than I've ever been. But I do burn a lot of calories. And listen, you know the energy I put out when I'm working anyway. That's the normal state of me. But I can't sit still, so it's not that difficult. No. You know, I'm finding here now doing this interview, I'm a chair under the desk and I'm bouncing and I want to get up and move. And that's sort of my state of affairs. So yeah, I can eat pretty happily. So have you not noticed any physical changes yet? Oh yeah. Well, look, I've got glasses on. I hate glasses. I hate the signal. I always had great eyesight. And now, you know, my arms are not long enough to hold menus anymore. So that's (laughs) the other change. They've obviously shrunk. And so I need to have the glasses on. My wife has a pair of glasses in her bag for when we go out. No, look, we all know the classic physical changes of getting older. I'm stronger and I've got more stamina than I've ever had, but I have zero bounce. I don't bounce anymore. When you were 20, you could jump off of a four or five foot wall and you would land and carry on. Now you're six inches off the ground and you go, maybe I'll step. And you're just like, when did that happen? All the exercise I do and I can't jump off a six inch wall. And so I find that difficult. You have the aches and pains. I'm constantly injured. And I will never, ever kowtow to my injuries. I think that that's not a good way to go. I mean, so what, you carry on training through injury? Yeah, I alter what I do through injury. Right. So I've got plantar fasciitis at the moment. I've stopped running. I've just cross-training. Right. Right, because it means less impact. But I'm not stopping. Seeing a physio as well? Sorting it out? Yeah, I've seen a physio. I mean, it's not too bad, this one. I, I tell you what, it all comes back. I did my back in when I was 17. Quite seriously, I was in hospital for about a month. Two or three weeks, maybe. Felt like a month. And uh, I ruptured the disc in my lower back. I had loss of feeling and pains in my right leg and other ongoing problems. It was horrible. Mm. I spent my 17th birthday having an operation on my back. Terrible. I, trying to get better. I didn't do the physio that well. And then I spoke to a doctor at the time and said, just avoid most exercise. That was basically the advice, which I did for a while. What, forever? <laughs> well, that was the impression. This was the 80s, remember? Yeah. And so I didn't get into that. And I didn't really do that much exercise. And then later on, I spoke to others and said, that's madness. Don't avoid it. Make your back stronger, not weaker. Mm. And so that's the philosophy I adopt now. I would prefer to be doing exercise in a bit of pain and physically fit than not doing any exercise and not risk an injury. Mm. And I'm 49. I'm going to get injuries. It's going to happen. But the exercise is so important to my mental health. Of course. You know, for me, it's the banker for my mental health exercise. Yeah. That and having a good cup of coffee every day. I don't do caffeine. You don't need caffeine. Kenny always said when he played rugby, when he first started the season as a rugby player, literally that first game he was fit. And then after that, there was something wrong pretty much for the rest of the season. And if he was lucky, it didn't make him miss a match. But, you know, his body was never, ever going to be perfect. Whereas athletics, your sport of choice in terms of watching, athletes have got to be like racehorses. You know, they can't stand it if there's like even the tiniest strain because they think something's going to snap. So there's two ends of the spectrum there. But they're so high performance that can understand them running world records yeah but the point is if you're a rugby player at 96 percent, then grunt and effort and an iq can get you through it but if you're an athlete at 96 percent, you lose <laughs> or do yourself an injury that's even worse but i just think for me it's such an important part of my life the exercise so you're more the rugby player of midlife <laughs> yeah i'm no rugby player <laughs> I've never been good at sport. There is not one sport I can tell you I'm good at. You're so competitive, though. You've got such a competitive demeanour. I know. it's Life is just bloody cruel. <laughs> I should have been an amazing sportsman. 
Right. I am incredibly competitive and I love my golf. Golf is my sport of choice now. A lot of steps there. Not as many as you think, you know. You're obviously too good. <laughs> and you have to be very careful. Just a tip, everybody out there, if you're into steps, if you're pushing your trolley, so I have to push my trolley with my left hand because if I hold my trolley with my right hand, the steps diminish because my fitness tracker's on my right hand and you get less steps. It takes about 40% of steps off if you're pushing. So Only you would have worked that out. <laughs> same with prams, by the prams, way. Prams, wheelchairs, anybody out there pushing, pushing things, Martin's got your steps sorted out. Yeah, not that I take my steps seriously or anything. <laughs> no, not at all. So exercise, diet, lifestyle, it seems like that's all really well thought out. Diet's not quite as good. Nutrition? Nutrition's not bad. Okay. It's not bad. You know what you should be eating. I eat too much junk. I love junky comfort food. And I do that more than I should. But I can get away with it. My wife, Laura, is incredibly healthy. And she's been a great influence on me because I was a terrible eater when we met. So I'm now halfway between us. So are you a secret junkie? Do you do it out of the house, do you? Or away from No, home? no. no I'm, you bring no, it in. <laughs> bring it in. I'm totally open about it. But again, the amount of exercise I do buys it for me. Well, it doesn't seem like burnout is an issue, although you've said things along the way that kind of infer that maybe you're aware of that. And when you're getting to the point where things are just getting a bit much, you know how to pull yourself away. But you, I know, have written a lot about the link between financial wealth and mental health and financial issues and difficulties in mental health. Well, absolutely. So I set up in 2016 and I'm still chair and fund the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute. I have a brilliant team there who do a lot of work on this. And you are three and a half times more likely to be in problem debt if you have a mental health condition than everybody else. It's thought the treatment time for clinical depression is up to 18 months longer if you have a financial problem. And it makes sense, doesn't it? You've got something real and tangible and actual to worry about. And many people who have a catastrophic mental health breakdown are unable to rescue themselves from the financial issue. It's one of the reasons we campaigned and succeeded on getting what's called breathing space if you're in uh, NHS crisis care, that you can't have creditors come to call and they can't come and touch you and that we got the law changed on that and many other things on the back of it. The two are very strongly linked. The problem that we have with debt, though, is you can cancel everything else, but you can't cancel your debts. And they follow you. Like fire, debt is a very useful tool, but get it wrong and it burns. And one of the problems that we have in the structures of mental health and money out there is no one deliberately set up to make it difficult for people with mental health problems to manage their money. Just nobody thought, how do we make it better? And most of the biases at the moment are the biases are assumed that people have good mental health. Whereas actually the research shows that it's very likely of people who have bailiffs knock at their door, over 50% of them have a mental health condition. So we perhaps need to start looking at whether we automatically bias the way the rules are written to assume that people have a mental health condition rather than to assume that they don't have a mental health condition. And that will be a challenge of policy over the next decade or so. You know, it's not easy to get out of debt. And I think people in this period of life that we're kind of in the midlife, you know, which is 38 to 54, according to the Social and Economic Resource Council, suddenly looking at their finances going, oh, gosh, retirement's looming. Have I done enough? You know, am I in a position where I'm ever going to be able to retire? And that in itself is stressful, isn't it? Yes. Because you can't make big plans and you can't change your life. Unfortunately, the situation we've been in for the last four or five years is the only certainty is uncertainty. And in a way, while that sounds both trite and soundbitey, what is important is you just have to embrace that uncertainty. You have to accept that we live in an uncertain position and therefore you are planning for the worst and hoping for the best. 
But life is difficult at the moment. We are amidst a cost of living crisis that does come on the back of the pandemic. We have to be somewhat careful in that the pandemic was polemic. For many people, it was the best financial event of their lifetimes. You know, we built up £165 billion more of savings in the UK than we had before. For those people who were working from home and had massively reduced costs, they found that they were able to pay off their debts and clear their mortgages. Even some who were on furlough and who were staying at home and had hugely reduced costs were better off. And then there were other people for whom it was catastrophic. Mm. So it was a really split nation. And the scars from that for the people who were in the side that were really hard done by are still there included in the many excluded group. But we also have the cost of living crisis at the moment, which is perhaps the most difficult financial crisis I've seen since I started doing this back in around 2000, primarily because many of the tools that are at a disposal to help people are those which say, you need to reduce your expenditure to lessen your income. It's as simple as that. But that is not possible for some at the lower end right now even if they absolutely cut their expenditure to core necessities, heating when it's needed, food and travel or transport for their children or themselves to work or whatever they do, you cannot make it balance, which is the reason I have been very publicly saying recently, this is no longer a money-saving problem. This is a political issue that needs political intervention. Now, for those people who are higher up the income scale, the cost of living crisis is still going to hurt. You know, if we simply talk about a £700 a year increase in energy bills likely to go up to £1,100 a year increase when you add together what will happen in October, then that has a big hit on people's incomes right the way up, even those earning 50, 60, 70, 80,000 pounds a year when combined with all the other inflationary pressures, which makes planning very difficult. So my main suggestion for people right now is actually, bizarrely, don't look at the big picture. It's too scary. Forget it itemize. Go through every single thing that you do. First of all, say, should I be spending on this? Is this an item I need? There are the necessities, there are luxuries. I'm not saying get rid of your luxuries if you can afford it. But question, is it worth it? And if it is worth it, ask yourself, am I doing it the cheapest and the best way? And many people aren't, and they need to invest time in doing so. Putting money aside for retirement is very complicated. We could do an hour just on that. Certainly, I would say to anyone who is an employee and has a workplace pension, especially if you're on auto-enrolment, make sure if you can afford to, you are maxing that out and you don't opt out because if you don't, you're effectively giving away a pay rise that your company is giving you. If your company is going to match what you put in and you don't take it, now that's extra money for your retirement that you're giving away that you need. But absolutely, these are all difficulties in life. The funny thing, though, of course, you identify the difficulties if you're 38 to 54. Well, there are difficulties when you're 20 to 38, and the difficulties when you're 54 to 67, and there are difficulties when you're 67 onwards. And those financial life stages are always difficult. And we always have to keep on top of it and manage it. And with your advice and wisdom, I think a lot of people do a lot better than they otherwise would, Martin. I hope so. Keep doing what you do brilliantly and keep looking after yourself health-wise, obviously the steps and the nutrition. So many people say that to me, Gabby. Even on social media, they say that to me. It always worries me. Do I look like I'm on breaking point? No, no. I'm saying keep doing what you're doing because okay. you look good. You look good. You look fit. You look well. You look strong. And people love seeing you on TV. They love hearing you on radio. I know your faith is important to you as well. Is midlife an area where you've kind of had more time for that? Would you consider yourself 
more spiritual or less spiritual than you were when you were younger? I'm not a particularly spiritual person. I'm Jewish and I'm practicing, but I'm practicing because I'm not very good at it. And I do segment that off as a side part of my life. I'm not particularly religious. It's much a sort of custom and practice for me as it is a faith issue as part of respecting my family past and identity. But I do find it is important just to have an outlet, whether you're religious or you're spiritual or what it is, Mm -hmm. just to understand that we're all just ants on a big planet and all ultimately squashable. And actually, in some ways, I find that a way to make life a bit easier and take the pressure off, just remembering that we're all rather trivial when it comes down to it and shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. That's a perfect denouement. I think that's the closing line. (laughs) Martin, I know your time is incredibly difficult to get hold of and I really appreciate the time that you've given us today. So go and have some junk food or whatever it is you're planning on doing this evening. And uh, I will see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much to James for coming on Midpoint. He was as interesting and informative and a lot calmer, actually, than I was expecting when you watch him on his TikToks and social media. I love his advice. If you go and have a look, I mean, one of my favourites was um, about body scanning and all the kind of calipers and things that people are put through in fitness tests. He said, just take a photo, have a look at yourself in six weeks. You'll see if you look better. Great advice. Thank you so much as well to Martin, as feisty and challenging as he ever was and honest about his penchant for occasionally indulging in a little bit of unhealthy fast food, but clearly very, very fit and obsessed with his steps by his own admission, which seems to be doing the business for him. He looks as trim as ever. Uh, Thank you for your midpoint moments. I'm going to read a couple of them out now. And the question was, what moments are you grateful for in midlife? And Sheila Lewis Racing says, I started training racehorses at 45 years of age. Go, Sheila. Midlife gives you wisdom, drive and strength. And Muck Batfink says, I'm grateful I'm still here that I have the attitude to try new activities and careers, have an eagerness to learn and explore, and HRT. And she also says she loves the midpoint, which I am very grateful for. Thank you very much. And Jane White says, your podcast reminds me that my now is valid and I matter. I wouldn't compare myself with someone turning 50 in four months against who I was or who I hope to be, but simply embrace the now, be proud of all that I am and do, and thank you for your guests and their sanity. I'm so glad I discovered you were also on a soul searching journey at the same time I was. Well, I'm glad that we both discovered that, Jane. Thank you very much. And keep those coming in. I absolutely love hearing from you. And we are a community here at Midpoint. And you are a very, very important part of that. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Solgar for sponsoring, to Lauren Armstrong Carter for producing and gratitude for everything that goes well for us in the next week or so. Take care. I'll speak to you soon. 